Real Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about elements or things that have made the scriptures become real to us so that we can draw more power from them. I'm your host, Kerry Mielstein, and in this episode, we're going to talk about David. And we're going to do so uh, in, in some ways that don't fit exactly with uh, the Come Follow Me uh, reading schedule, partially because we're going to uh, go a little bit beyond what's in this reading. They have us skip a lot of chapters, and so I'm going to cover at least a couple of elements or incidents that go beyond this reading. Uh, but I'm also going to change the order just a little bit. And let me tell you the reason for that. If you've read this story before, you'll, you'll find that the chronology is a little bit confusing because as we get to the end of chapter 16, David is invited to Saul's house, uh, his palace, to play the harp for him. And then we get to chapter 17 where he's killing Goliath and, and Saul seems to be meeting him for the first time. And this, uh, this is a little bit confusing for people, uh, and it should be. It, it's got seemingly two stories of how David met uh, Saul. And uh, lots of people have tried to figure this out. I'll tell you, I have my opinion uh, as to what's probably going on. I think that whoever was compiling this record, and remember, we've got some people who are kind of like Mormon, uh, who are taking lots of different records and, and abridging them and putting them together. And they had a couple of different accounts, and they just put them both in there but I think they got the chronological order wrong. So we're going to do the story the way I think that the order should go, which is that we go through the first part of chapter 16, where David is anointed. Then we get to chapter 17, and then we go back to the end of chapter 16. So that's how we're going to do the story. Um, and uh, if I'm wrong, then I apologize, but it's the way that makes the most sense to me. So to review where we are, you remember that uh, Saul has been king, and he's been rejected as king. Uh, and so, first of all, he's rejected as in that the kingdom won't go through his descendants. Then he's rejected as in God is not with him anymore, and God is going to anoint someone else. That doesn't mean Saul will die right then, but someone else is anointed to be king, and the spirit will be with that person rather than with Saul. And in fact, I think you're going to see that a number of times in the reading, it says that an evil spirit from the Lord came to trouble Saul. The Joseph Smith translation consistently changes that to an evil spirit, not from the Lord. I think what you have is Saul dealing with his, uh, his knowledge that he has not lived up to his own ideals. He's not behaving in a way and hasn't behaved in a way that is consistent with his own beliefs. And that kind of a, a schism uh, in, in your belief and your, uh, uh, your actions always eats at your, your soul and causes you difficulties. And uh, what's more, he sees that his actions are going to affect his children, uh, especially Jonathan, who is completely wonderful and worthy. And I think that that guilt eats him up. Uh, we're going to see it uh, later when he comes to recognize that David is going to be the next king. And he knows that, that Jonathan is helping David and he gets after um, Jonathan for it. It's not in the reading that's assigned to you, but uh, he he talks to him, what's, what's wrong with you? You know, to, to your mother's shame, you're doing this. Don't you know he's going to be king? Uh, so we'll cover that a little bit as well. But I think that Dave or Saul is dealing with enough guilt over his actions and, and how they're affecting him and how they're affecting others, and yet is still so caught up in wanting the approval of the world and wanting to do things in a way that the, the Israelites will like him. He's gotten to where this means so much to him. And we talked in the last episode about that's really what leads to his fall is he is so caught up in thinking the way the world thinks and, and uh, what does the world think of him that he behaves a different way and he can't seem to get himself out of that cycle. 
we will also see that Saul frequently is presented with the knowledge that he's doing it wrong, and he has a quick change, and then he's back to where he was. Now, this is real. I'm not saying he doesn't have real changes. We all do this in one way or another. We all have times where we're like, okay, I'm going to do better. And then the next time the temptation comes, we give into it again. Um, but Saul seems to do this in some pretty wild and sporadic ways, ways that are often, I, I, I would guess uh, Saul could be diagnosed with a, um, a couple of uh, mental health issues by this point. Uh, and uh, one of the things that he really struggles with is being consistent in his changes when he has them. Uh, and this, this is all very sad for Saul. I, I really, really am sad. I, I hope uh, that he will have some changes in the next life. Um, but I'm not here to judge him, but we do need to point out what we can learn from him. So let's go to chapter 16, where we learn that the Lord has rejected Saul, um, and he tells uh, Samuel to go get a horn and fill it with oil. Note the symbolism there. You've probably by now heard a few times that horns are symbolic of power. And so when you put anointing oil and horn, then you really have this great symbol of God's power being put on someone. Um, and he says, I want you to go uh, anoint someone that's in Bethlehem and uh, of the family of Jesse. And, and Samuel says, well, I think Saul will kill me if he hears I'm doing that. And, and God gives him an excuse. Well, go make a sacrifice and invite Jesse's family to the sacrifice. You don't need to tell Saul that part. And so that's exactly what happens. And we don't need to spend a lot of time on this, but it is worth noting because of how we, we get this theme coming again and again and again that uh, when Samuel gets to Jesse's house and he looks on Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and he says, surely the Lord's anointed is before me, right? Now, I don't know if this is because uh, Samuel has taken in also like what they need as kings as great warriors, great big guys that can be great warriors, or if he just figures the Lord is still going to do that because the reason that Israel has Saul is because they wanted someone like Saul. And they got someone like Saul. They wanted someone who was physically imposing and able to lead them into battle. And that pressure created Saul into being who Saul was. And to some degree, it's, it really is. I, I, I think, honestly, God gave them what they asked for, and it didn't work out very well. Sometimes that happens for us or happens to us. Uh, and so I don't know if Samuel's thinking, well, God's going to do the same thing or not, but, but there's a contrast. There's an intentional contrast being set up here um, that that is not what God is doing this time. God is giving them someone that is the way he would choose, not the way they chose. So he's not going to go with the world's ideas. He's going to go with his own ideas. So we're going to come back to that in just a second. We get uh, Samuel saying, surely the Lord anointed us before him. Then we get, this is in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7, a classic and, and just a, a line that's worth knowing. But the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance, nor on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now, this is going to be a description of, of David a number of times. He is someone whom the Lord loves. Uh, and so I know that David is going to fall, and we'll get to that when we get to that. But, but really, David is, for much of his history, both before and after his fall, he is the kind of person the Lord loves. 
And so we should learn from that. What is it about David that makes him someone that the Lord loves so that we can become someone like that? All right. So God looks on David's heart and he sees that this is the person he wants. It is not the person that you would have guessed, right? So Jesse calls his other sons of Minadab and that's not him and Shammah and seven of his sons passed before Samuel. And Samuel says that that's not any of them. Credit again to Samuel for always listening to the Lord. Uh, and finally, Samuel says, are, are these all thy children? He said, no, the, the youngest one is out there. He keeps the sheep. He's the youngest one. He's just a young guy right now and didn't think he was even, uh, we need someone to keep the sheep and didn't think he was even really a candidate. So Samuel says to fetch him. And he comes in, it says he was ruddy. So he, he's, he's probably, if he's not a redhead, He's of that complexion. Uh, we're going to get it a few times. It says he's ruddy and he's pale. So, you know, kind of a, uh, this paler skin that gets um, a, a little bit of a red flush to it sometimes, um, but goodly to look to. All right. So he's a handsome guy, proportionate, handsome, everything. He's not this big strapping guy that his brothers, or at least some of his brothers are. He's handsome uh, with this ruddy countenance or elsewhere it will say a pale countenance and uh so that's that's as he's it, as you look at him it's not who you think ah this is the guy but god says arise anoint him for this is he and samuel to his credit does it uh anoints him in the midst of his brethren and the spirit of the lord came upon david from that day forward so this is the the contrast very very strong contrast the world has its way of doing things. And if we subscribe to that, it affects us to our undoing. And God has his way of doing things. And if we subscribe to that, it will affect us to our betterment and to our blessing. So it makes me wonder how much we are affected by the world today and how much that might be creating things. Sometimes God will give us what we ask for and how much that might be creating things in our lives or in our society that are so detrimental to us. And we've said this before, and we'll say it again. I think that many of the social issues of the day are so much the world's agenda. They are so much mankind's way of thinking and of doing things. And I can't blame people if they're just doing the best they can without the, the gospel, then good luck to them. And, and I can't blame them for not doing well. But we are fortunate we have a prophet and we have 15 prophets, seers, and revelators. Here we have Samuel the seer, or prophet, to guide Israel when they will listen to him. We have 15 of them. If we will listen to them, oh, how much better that will work out for us. God tells them to have us do things and believe things and act in ways that are not necessarily what the world would tell us to do. That's to be expected. But I think that sometimes we're so influenced by the world that, that everything that they say, we hear and filter through the world rather than vice versa. And that's going to affect us in ways that will come back to haunt us. I'm convinced that it is happening now. I'm convinced it's happening to our children, that our children, unfortunately, are affected by the way we've filtered things down to them and by the way the world is filtering things to them. It's a sad and terrible thing. And I, I hope that we can work on overcoming this. Uh, we need to recognize when we're listening to the world and not the Lord. That's a key element in our lives right now. So, as we said, the spirit of the Lord will depart from Samuel and an evil spirit will trouble him um, and uh, so on. We're going to come back to that. So we've got Sa uh, David being anointed. All right. 
And, and that part may have happened after chapter 17. I'm not sure. I think there's a decent chart chance that what we've read, we've read up through um, verse 13. That, that could go either way. I think there's a decent chance that that happens after chapter 17 as well. But it may have happened before. But we're going to skip down to chapter 17. So chapter 17 is the famous story that we all know about. But I'm going to tell you a couple elements of this that have made it very real to me. Um, so we get the Philistines gathered their armies together. And they gather at Shoko, which belongs to Judah, and they pitch their, their tents between Shoko and Azekah and Ephes Damim, which is the field of blood. So um, this is interesting. Uh, you can, we know where Shoko is. We know where Azekah is. We can actually plot fairly reasonably, I think within 100 yards, where this army is camped. I'm going to describe it a little bit here. We're not going to use pictures because 90% of my audience is listening only. But I will tell you that, again, I have on the YouTube channel, um, the, there's the playlist that is Old Testament videos, and I've got two of them, David 1.1 and 1.2, that uh, go through maps, uh, Google Earth pictures, uh, pictures that I've taken there, and so on, so you can really get a feel for this geography. I'll do my best to explain it here. Um, but let's, let's uh, understand so, some general geography principles. The Philistines... Their stronghold is the coastal plains. All right. So Israel, if you if you start at the west at the Mediterranean Sea, you've got coastal plains, and at the east, well, the very far east is the Jordan River. But just before that, you've got the hills, the high hills that Jerusalem is in, and you've got this this ridge road that the the way of the patriarchs goes along. So you've got down from sea level up to about 2,600 feet above sea level and just a few miles as you get to these high hills, and then it drops down to below sea level in the the Dead Sea Valley, the Jordan River and the Dead Sea Valley. Um, uh, but th that's where the Israelites, the, up in the hills is where they're ensconced in these high hills towards the east. The Philistines are on the coastal plains in the west. And in between the two are what we might call the foothills or the low hills. There are some rolling hills that approach those high hills. And uh, so there are five valleys, and we won't go through all of them, but there are five valleys through these low hills that can get you up to the high hills. And if you can control those valleys, you control access either coming down from the hills out to the coastal plains or coming from the coastal plains up to the hills. And so each group has some cities that are set in those hills. The Elah Valley is one of the main ways to get up. It's just south of Jerusalem, just barely south of Jerusalem. And then there's, there's a valley just north of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's kind of uh, safe in between these two valleys. Um, but the Elah Valley is one of these main ways to get up into the high hills. And so you have um, the, the city of Gath is right as you go from the coastal plains into the Elah Valley of the low hills. That's the Philistine city that kind of controls that access point. So that's them controlling access to the coastal plain, to and from the coastal plain. The Israelites will have some cities. Azekah was one, then it's kind of abandoned, then it becomes the city again that um, controls access into the high hills uh, there in the coastal plain. And it's just a little ways away from Gath. They're kind of looking at each other. You can see uh, Azekah from Gath and Gath from Azekah. They're kind of staring at each other, these two uh, big towns that are lo looking and controlling that area almost as a Cold War standoff kind of a thing. Um, but Azekah is not huge at this time. It, it has been and it will be. Uh, we're actually going to find that uh, Saul creates a camp that is just um, 
to uh, it's west. Um, well, no, let's see here. It's it's uh, north and um, a little bit east of the Philistine camp. They've camped there to try and stop the Philistine march. All right. So the Philistines are marching up the Elah Valley. They've left Gath. Um, Gath is a bigger city than any of the Israelite cities. It's a huge city. They've got more people there than the Israelites have uh, in any given region or area. And they're marching up towards the high hills. Now, this is of particular interest to David's family who live in Bethlehem, because if you get uh, uh, through the Elah Valley and come to the high hills, the city that's at the top of the high hills, where you will naturally come out at, at the top, if you're going to come up into those high hills, you arrive at Bethlehem. That big Philistine army is heading towards Bethlehem, towards Jesse and David's hometown. So it's no wonder that Jesse sends a bunch of his sons to go fight in the army. He sends David down with provisions for his sons and others. Uh, this is a, a very important thing. If the Israelites can't stop the Philistines there, then they end up uh, pillaging home. And so that's what this battle is all about. Saul creates this big camp um, on the other side of the valley from the Philistines, just east of the Philistines to stop their, their, the Philistines are marching from the west to the east. And so Saul comes down and stops their march. Um, and that's where they get into this standoff, where these two armies are looking across the valley at each other. And that's where Goliath is going to come and, and start to make fun of them and uh, holler at them and that kind of a thing. And it's right, uh, there's, a, there's an S curve in the Elah Valley. So as you come from Gath, you, you kind of curve um, to the north a little bit, and it goes, then it goes to the north quite a bit as it goes around Azekah, goes around the north, curves around uh, Azekah, comes south of Azekah, and then starts to head east again um, as it goes, uh, and, and a little bit to the north again as it heads up towards those high hills. And so it creates this S uh, area. And Saul's camp, where he camps, if we've identified it correctly, and I'm fairly confident that, that we have, you never know 100% for sure, but I, I think we have for a number of reasons. But uh, it, it has, you can come down off that hill two different directions. If you come down one way, you're coming down where the Philistine army currently was in between Azekah and Shoko. But if you come down the other side, you come down uh, right where Azekah is. And so uh, they can control uh, a couple of different access points right in the middle of that S curve. Uh, and that, that will come uh, be an important thing that we get to in a minute. Let's talk about uh, Goliath. Goliath is huge, six cubits and a span. Um, if you're going to uh, take that uh, seriously and you use the typical measurement for a cubit, then you get someone who's over nine feet tall. Uh, if you, a good friend of mine um, who was on the a program a while ago when we did judges, Jeff Chadwick, who has excavated at Gath for, oh, like, I think almost two decades. Um, he has um, presented very, very convincing evidence that it's not the Egyptian cubit that's being referred to in the Bible, but what he calls a Canaanite cubit, which is actually slightly longer. So this would put um, Goliath at uh, close to the 10 foot mark. At the same time, there's another version of this, the Dead Sea Scrolls version, which is an earlier version than the version we have. And it has uh, a different set of measurements that if you're using the Egyptian cubit would have uh, Goliath at seven foot six. So for those of you who know Sean Bradley, that would be his height, right? This is a very tall center in the NBA, but not unheard of. Um, if it's the um, Canaanite cubit, then that would be closer to like seven, uh, nine, seven, ten. That's still 
taller than normal, but not nine feet, right? Uh, either way, it, this guy's, a, as Jeff Chadwick would put it, he's a glandular freak. Uh, he is just huge uh, in a way that would scare everyone. And he seems to be not skinny, but proportionate to the, uh, you know, he's just a big, big guy. And he's got uh, armor and he's got a, a staff that's huge. And I mean, he just, this is a big and a scary guy. And uh, he is defying everyone. Now you see the irony here that Saul was chosen because they wanted someone to lead them to battle and they were so thrilled to get someone that was taller than everyone else. So then what happens? Someone taller than Saul comes along to defy Israel. And part of the lesson that I believe is intentionally being taught here is as long as you are relying on the world's way of establishing power and the world's way of doing things, there's always going to be someone taller and bigger and stronger and smarter and whatever else. There's always someone that can outdo you. And then after a while, there'll be someone that can outdo them. And then after a while, someone that can outdo them. That's how it will always, always, always work if you're relying on the world's strength and the world's ideas. Uh, there's so many things in this that are just designed to help us understand how dumb it is to accept what the world teaches us, but we keep doing it anyway. Anyway, so you've got uh, this Philistine and he's uh, ready for this single combat, kind of like um, Hector and Achilles. And you get this uh, playing out a couple of times in history uh, where it, it kind of comes down to single combat uh, to decide fates of armies and so on. Anyway, that's what he's looking for, but no one among the Israelites wants to come and play with, uh, with Goliath. So then David or Jesse sends David and he brings a bunch of food and so on. And they make fun of him and say, ah, you've come here to see the battle because you think it's really cool and that's dumb of you and so on. Um, but David, this is one of the things, if we're going to learn what it is about David that makes it so the Lord loves him, it is David's perspective, the perspective that he keeps. Because David comes down and he says, hey, what's, what's going on? Uh, why is this Philistine um, defying all of us? Uh, we get in verse 26, so we're still in 1 Samuel 17, verse 26. And David spoke with the men that stood by him, saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? You see, everyone else is saying, that's their biggest guy, and he's bigger than our biggest guy. This is a problem. And David comes down and with a larger vision of what's going on, and he says, we are of the covenant. We have a covenant promise. Who is this that thinks he can defeat God's covenant people when he is not making or keeping covenants? And we are. What is going on? What's wrong with everyone here? Um, and Eliab, his brother, this is when he makes fun of him. And David says, uh, is there not a cause? Oh, what a great question to ask. Is there not a cause? We should be doing all sorts of things because there is a cause, right? That's, that's so important. So um, someone tells Saul about what David is saying, and uh, David says to Saul, let's not uh, let anyone's heart fail them because I will go and fight this Philistine. Uh, this is young David. Uh, Saul, still looking at things from the world's point of view, says, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Um, and then David says, Well, I have killed lions and bears. Oh, my. Um, and uh, he, uh, he said he gives credit to the Lord. Let's, let's just make it clear. He keeps giving credit to the Lord. Um, and he says, uh, This uncircumcised Philistine will be like the, uh, the lion and the bear, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. 
And he says, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. So Saul is convinced. Uh, I don't know if he thinks, well, he's such a young guy that we won't really have to honor this. Or if he's really, this is just one of those moments where the spirit moves on him. Every now and then the spirit really moves on Saul and Saul listens. This might be a time where Saul says, okay, this is the guy. He's got the faith. Let's go with this. He still is going to try and give David the best armor they have. Now, remember, they don't have a lot of armor and weapons. The Philistines haven't let them, have not let them use metalworking. Uh, and so they don't have a lot, but Saul has some. So he's giving David his uh, sword and his armor and Saul's too tall for that to fit well what's more david says i've, I've never tried this before this isn't me i'm not going to try I, i'm not going to rely on the world's ways is basically what he's saying i'm going to go with what i know uh, right and and there's something to that as well we don't all have to be have the same strengths uh we have our own strengths and we go with that but i think it's also david saying no i, I don't know how to use this and that's not what i rely on anyway uh, now he is going to use a sling and he's practiced with a sling quite a bit i would imagine being a shepherd uh, not only is it important to be good with some kind of weapon, but you have lots of time where you're sitting around doing nothing. And so you can get very good at these slings. I've done some slings a little bit. And if you have a good leather sling and you you can crack it like a whip and it's, you know, a whip when it cracks, it's because it's breaking the, the speed of sound there. This is, uh, at least that's what I've been told. I haven't done any scientific studies, but anyway, you can crack those and they'll go like that. And you can get these things hurling uh, upwards of a hundred miles an hour. All right. So again, my, my friend, Jeff Chadwick uh, says that, uh, the Goliath's problem is that he brought a sword to a sling fight, right? You can, with, if you're good with the sling, you can make those things go at lethal speed from a lot further away than you can do a spear or a sword. Um, but David is going to do that. He's just going to take uh, his, his uh, stone and his sling. And so this is one of the places where things can get pretty real. I mean, the, all of this geography I'm talking about makes things fairly real, but this is where things can get really, or have gotten really real for me. He took his staff in his hand and he chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even a scrip, right? So that's the bag that it's sometimes called the scrip in King James Version, like go without person scrip. And he drew near to the Philistine and the Philistine came on and drew near to David. So there's some interesting things we learned about the geography is that as David comes down the, the the camps are up on these hills and he's going to go down into the valley, which is where Goliath is. So they can fight this battle down in the valley, but he's going to go across the brook or the stream of Elah um, before. And that's, of course, you're going to find lots of good stones in there. That's a, it's a brook bed, right? And uh, he's going to go across that before he gets to Goliath. So this is the, the cool thing. And I'd like to give full credit and kudos to my wife who has been on the program before Julianne and her brother, Keith Larson. Uh, in fact, I really kind of wanted to have him on the program, but Keith is getting married tomorrow. And he said he was a little bit busy and Julianne's helping do things for that wedding. I think they just need to get their priorities straight. But anyway, I'm doing this without them. But uh, they went one time when Keith came to visit us while we were living in Israel and I was teaching and doing other things. And so they went out one time to this place and they, they drove up to, and it's hard to get to the place where we're pretty sure uh, Saul's army was. You need to do a little four-wheeling to get there. Uh, but they got up there, and then they said, well, let's go down the hill the way David would have gone and, and figure out what's going on here. And it turns out that uh, the stream comes along on the northern side of the valley, along the hills close to where uh, Saul's camp is. And then suddenly it juts across and goes on the southern side on the same side so the Philistines are on. So they're on the south side and the Israelites are on the north side. So when you come down from 
where David's camp or Saul's camp is, you only have like 10, 20 yards, maybe 30 yards before it moves over. And David would not be able to get something from the, the brook before he meets Goliath. So I think you can identify where he crosses and where the battle is within at least at, at most 50 yards and probably more than that. You can figure out exactly where this happens. And as you read the story and you're in that spot, the, the geography is so perfect and the story works so perfectly. You can tell this is a real deal, that this really happened the way they're describing. They didn't make this stuff up. This is really how things worked out and you can locate how everything happened. It's, it's really kind of fun, I think. Anyway. So he gets these, these uh, stones and he gets five. A lot of people have made a big deal out of this. And I think it's, it's a lesson that's worth uh, learning. He had full confidence in himself and God, but he thought, well, may not happen the first time. So he's going to uh, have five stones in case he needs to do more than that. I've also heard people say, no, it's because uh, Goliath had four brothers and he knew that they would all come after him and you have to kill them. Well, I mean, that's a good way of talking about how uh, it really is true that you avenge family and, in the ancient Near East and in the Middle East today and so on. But, uh, but we have nothing in the, the text about that. And so I think that's, I mean, it's an interesting way of putting that, but I, I think it's stretching a little bit. Anyway, uh, either way, learn uh, whatever lessons you would have from that. Goliath makes fun of him. He's uh, ruddy and of a fair countenance and, uh, and so on. And he says, am I a dog? And here's what I'm going to do to you. And um, going to you know, take your head from you and give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day, the fowls of the air. Oh, wait, no, sorry. Uh, I'm, I'm quoting David. So first of all, he says, uh, I'll give thy flesh to the fowls of the air and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, and this is again, a classic, classic line. So we're in verse 45. Thou comest to me with the sword and with the spear and with the shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. Again, that perspective of David. He sees things the way they really are. He sees the bigger picture. It's so easy to get caught up in the little pictures and miss the bigger pictures. So let me just give you an example uh, in my own life. We, we have six kids and uh, there was, I think we went uh, 12 years where we didn't have someone in diapers and often two in diapers. And um, I got pretty tired of changing diapers. I, I tried to make a deal with my wife. She made the deal with me that, because she really doesn't like throw up and, and I'm not a big fan of diapers. So I made the deal with her and she agreed to it that uh, I would clean up all the throw up if she would do all the diapers. Um, she never stuck to that deal, totally betrayed me on that. But anyway, uh, so I didn't really love changing diapers. And uh, after, I don't know, I've been changing diapers for three or four years or something, I read this Enzyme article back when we had a magazine called The Enzyme. And someone talked about how they didn't love that either, but they, uh, they remembered or they tried to remember that this, they're, what they're doing, because we all say, I'm sick of doing diapers, I'm sick of doing laundry, I'm sick of doing dishes, right? This is what parents' lives consist of, is doing those same things again and again and again and again and again. And this article was saying, you have to keep in mind the big picture. You're not changing a diaper to get rid of the poop. You're not uh, doing dishes to get rid of the garbage on the plates you are raising and taking care of God's children. And think of it that way and use those moments in that way. And they had some specific suggestions and I, and I tried those suggestions. So I tried to make changing the diaper where I would, I would try and look in my child's eyes when I would do that and connect with them and think of who they were becoming and help them feel my love. And I'll tell you, I still don't love diapers, but I like them better. I just changed my, my grandson's diaper 
yesterday. Still didn't love it, but I made it a moment to remember the big picture and uh, that this is how he knows, one of the ways he knows I love him and I can connect with him in a way that hopefully is important in this bigger picture of raising God's children up to him. Uh, that's the kind of big picture we need with everything we're doing. Why are we taking the quizzes that we're taking? Why are we working the job that we're working? And keep in mind the big picture, not the little picture. And keep in mind uh, that if we're trying to do it God's way, it works out better. Anyway, that's David keeps this big picture in mind. And he, uh, of course, he kills Goliath, right? He, he uses the sling and, and knocks him down. And then uh, he uh, runs up and takes his sword and kills him. Um, and uh, we get uh, all the men of Israel, verse 52, and all the men of Israel and of Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until they'll come to the valley and the gates of Ekron. So not past Gath and all the way out to, to another place, um, uh, even unto Gath and then Ekron. Um, but the Philistines fell down by the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way to Sha'arim. So Sha'arim um, seems to be the name of the place where Saul's army was. And what seems to have happened is uh, because you can have some of Saul's army come pouring down on the, uh, the eastern side of their camp down into the valley where the Philistines are, but the Philistines are going to start running. But the other group can pour down on the other side, on the western side. So that you've got the southeastern side is where the army is, or the battle is, and they pour down on that southeastern side. And the Philistines start to run through that S-curve, but the Israelites can also come down the other side of the hill on the northwestern uh, side, and they catch the army in between. Uh, and uh, they're at the way to Sha'arim. And that's where the Philistines fall down because the, they get caught in a pincher movement uh, there. And you can just see it happening perfectly when you look at the geography. This is a very real thing. So then we get Saul, uh, who saw David go against the Philistines, and he said to Abner, this is a name we should remember, Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, inquire thou whose son the stripling is. And David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines and Abner took him and brought him before Saul, the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said unto him, whose son art thou young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. All right. So this is where they get to, in my opinion, this is how the story works best. This is where they get to know David. It's just after, or just before he's anointed kind of suspect it's just before, but maybe it's just after. Now we go back up to chapter 16. Because at the end of chapter 16, the spirit of the Lord departs from Saul and an evil spirit comes and he gets troubled. I, I think he's dealing, I mean, depression, anxiety, all sorts of stuff going on with him there uh, because of the, the mistakes that he's making and his inability to deal with it and his uh, not choosing to uh, correct it. I am certainly not saying that that is the reason people are, I mean, I think sometimes that's the reason depression, anxiety and other kinds of uh, diagnosable things happen. It's not the only reason. I think it's minority reason. There are tons and tons and tons of reasons, uh, chemical being one of them and all sorts of other things. I don't pretend to understand all the reasons we're having this go on. Uh, so please don't misunderstand me or misread me in this, but I think it can be a reason. And I think Saul is suffering from this difficulty. Um, and uh, so we get verse 16, let our Lord now command thy servants, which are before thee to seek out a man who is a cunning player on a harp. 
and it shall come to pass when the evil spirit from God is upon thee, or as it's changed from Joseph Smith translation, evil spirit that is not from God is upon thee, that he shall play with the sand and thou shall be well. It's uh, good music can help with uh, these issues. Uh, we've had that uh, our stake president has promised us that in our stake, but we've heard talks about this. Uh, I think there are some uh, scientific studies that demonstrate this, that uplifting music can help um, I mean, they're not, nothing is a, a cure-all, but they can help with some, uh, sometimes when you're, it can be a coping skill or one of your safety mechanisms, those kinds of things. So Saul said unto his servants, provide me now a man that can play well and bring him to me. Then answered one of the servants and said, behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite that is a cunning player, or is cunning in playing and a mighty valiant man and a man of war and is prudent in manners and a comely person and the Lord is with him. So what I suspect is that David kind of became a little bit of a, a hero in the camp there after he killed Goliath. And that night he may have pulled out the harp or someone gave him a harp or a lyre and uh, he started playing it. And uh, they said, wow, this guy is uh, good. We really enjoy it. And he's a great uh, warrior. So when they say we need someone that can play the harp, they're like, oh, let's get this guy. Not only have we seen he is a fantastic warrior and he's just wise in what he does, but he can play the harp or the lyre really well. So then Saul sent messengers unto Jesse and said, send me David thy son, which is with the sheep, because he'd just gone back to doing what he was doing beforehand. And Jesse sends him, and uh, Saul, David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him. He, he, I, I, it's hard to know who is loving who greatly, but it's probably both. And David became Saul's armor bearer, and Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David, I pray thee, stand before me, for he hath found favor in my sight. And it came to pass uh, that when this evil spirit was upon Saul, David took a harp and played it. So Saul was refreshed as well, and the evil spirit departed from him. And so David doesn't leave from Saul's house after this. So I think that's probably the order that we get, uh, is that, that David is introduced at the battle. It doesn't make sense the other way, because he's, uh, it comes and meets Saul. If you go with the other chronology, he comes and meets Saul at the end of chapter 16, and then in chapter 17, they're meeting for the first time. And uh, he's already a valiant man, of battle at the end of chapter 16, but in chapter 17, he's never been battled before. So it just doesn't work the other way. I think if we reverse this order, I think they just got the, them in the wrong chronological order as they compiled the story. Anyway, let's go to chapter 17 because there are 18. There's some beautiful things in this. It came to pass that when in many land of speaking unto Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit with the soul of David. I love, love, love that phrase. We had the same phrase actually with um, describing Jacob and Benjamin when uh, Judah was pleading to, with Joseph to not keep Benjamin because he said that, uh, he, I think it's translated there, that his soul was tied up in the life, lad's life or something like that. But it's the same phrase, his soul was knit in the, the lad's soul, and uh, Jacob would die if Benjamin didn't come home. So it's uh, twice in the scriptures, uh, soul knit in soul, uh, nefesh, kesherab, and nefesh. Um, when we were engaged, my wife asked me what phrase I thought would uh, describe our relationship. And that's the one I came up with, Nefesh Kesharab and Nefesh. And she, she surprised me. She sent to a friend of ours that was still staying, uh, President Hewish, she'd been the district president, um, was still living in Jerusalem. And he went down to a shop on Ben Yehuda Street. And uh, she had this uh, carved into a, a ring, a gold ring, uh, Nefesh Kesharab and Nefesh. And she surprised me with that on my uh, wedding day. And so uh, I, it became my phrase all the more, my favorite phrase all the more. But in any case, uh, this is a fantastic story and yet a sad story. 
we have already seen the contrast of Jonathan with Saul, that Jonathan, where, where Saul feels like he needs the power of men to win his battles, Jonathan thought he just needed the power of God. Saul is relying on a huge army, and Jonathan says two of us can do it. Um, and so Jonathan is someone who trusts in God and sees things God's way, not the way Saul does, who sees things the world's way. David is also someone who sees things God's way. He thinks it doesn't matter how big that person is and how small I am. If God is with me, I can do it. Just like Jonathan says, it doesn't matter by, whether by many or few, God can deliver us. So it's no wonder that their souls knit with each other. They are people who are alike. The irony is that Jonathan, would, it would seem, would be every bit as great a king as David. And he's not going to be king because of what his father did. And at some point, they all seem to figure out that David's going to be king instead of Jonathan. And it doesn't bother Jonathan. He stays David's friend. That's more testament of to what a fantastic, amazing person Jonathan is, that even when he knows that this person will become king instead of me, though I'm the rightful heir, he'll become king. He, <coughs> he helps David. He sticks with David. He aids him. He loves him. What an amazing person Jonathan is. In any case, uh, Jonathan and David make a covenant with each other, and um, wherever David goes, Saul sends him, and, and wherever he goes, David behaves himself wisely, and uh, Saul sent him over the men of war, and he's accepted uh, in the sight of all the people, and uh, we get in, this is in uh, chapter 18, so 1 Samuel 18, we're going to read verse 6, this is one of the, the telling things both about David, Saul, and uh, Saul's downfall, and in some ways, David's undoing in, uh, in Saul's eyes. It came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets with joy and instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul hath slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now this tells us, I mean, that's not just Goliath, right? This tells us David is wildly successful in battle. David can do everything. He composes music, com uh, composes profound lyrics, plays the harp. Uh, he's a great shepherd. He can use a sling. He's now apparently very good with uh, sword and shield and spear. Whatever David is asked to do, he succeeds wildly. I suspect this is because he has the spirit of the Lord with him. He must have some degree of natural talent and ability, but he is magnified by the Lord. And so he's more successful in leading troops than anyone, it would seem. Uh, and this doesn't go over well with Saul. He says, they've ascribed unto David ten thousands to me. They've ascribed but thousands. And what can he have more but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day forward. My guess is because Saul knows the kingdom's not going to continue with his seed. My guess is this is where he starts to think, uh, this is the guy. This is the guy who will become king. And then uh, we get uh, Saul trying to kill David. So this is the continued downfall of Saul. He's now trying to murder someone who's helping him and is close to him. Uh, but David behaves, behaves himself wisely, and that makes Saul all the more afraid of him. Uh, plus, Israel and Judah, they love David. And uh, so Saul is thinking of marrying him to his eldest daughter. I don't know if he thinks this will help control things and keep things in the family. Uh, and it's, it's worth thinking about, well, if he's going to be the king anyway, then at least my daughter and my, that's way, that way my grandchildren can be kings. And, and so through my grandchildren, uh, we keep the kingdom. 
Um, but then that doesn't happen. David protests that that doesn't happen. Uh, his, this daughter Marab is given to someone else. Um, but by the way, this would help David's uh, claim to the throne, make some sense if all of David's or Saul's sons end up dying, that David's or Saul's daughter and son-in-law might become king, right? So, uh, but in any case, uh, it turns out that Michal, Saul's daughter, Michal loves David. Well, it seems like everyone loves David, so that's not surprising. Uh, and Saul, this pleases him, but now Saul has an idea. Saul says, I'll give him her that she may be a snare to him and the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Wherefore, Saul said to David, thou shalt this day be my son-in-law uh, in the one of the twain. All right. Uh, so meaning you're going to, you're going to marry my other daughter. And he commands his servants saying, commune with David secretly saying, behold, the king hath delight in thee and all his servants love thee. Now, therefore be the king's son-in-law. Um, and, uh, then they tell him in verse 25, lest you say to David, the king desireth not any dowry, but an hundred foreskins of the Philistines to be avenged of the king's enemies. So that's a little bit macabre, but the idea is that he has to prove that he's killed a hundred people who are not of the covenant. And uh, so the, what Saul is thinking is that if he sets David in an impossible battle situation, he doesn't have to kill David. Instead, the Philistines will. So he's trying to create a situation in which he can rationalize not being a murderer and instead just uh, create the situation where David, someone else kills David. This is ironic because David will come up with the same idea himself. Uh, just supreme irony. But in any case, this doesn't make Saul less culpable than it would make David later. Uh, but it doesn't work out because David is, and his men are so amazing, he's told to bring 100 foreskins, and instead he brings 200. And he's successful, and uh, he marries Michal, and this, again, brings him closer to the throne and, and heightens the story. Now, that's the end of the chapters that we're asked to do in the Come, Follow Me reading. But I'm going to highlight just a couple of other stories quickly. Um, Saul's going to try and kill David, and Michal will help him escape. Um, other times, he's going to try and kill David. And Jonathan warns him, and he goes out, uh, and he hides. And then Jonathan tries to mollify his father, and instead his father gets mad at him, and so they have this uh, set signal where he'll shoot an arrow, and it goes too far, and he sends the servant the wrong direction, and they know, uh, or too far, and uh, or not far enough, and, and uh, so this is the signal that Saul, or th that Saul's still trying to kill David, and uh, Jonathan goes out and warns him again. How amazing that Jonathan is helping David escape when if he helps his father or even doesn't stop his father, then he can be king instead of David. Uh, truly amazing. And I will say that uh, the, the place where this happened, Gibeah, uh, there are some remains of, well, just a couple stones left of Saul's palace there. So we know where all this was happening. In fact, one time I, uh, th there's really only one big stone left and it gets overgrown with weeds. There's also the remains of the palace that they were building for the King of Jordan when Jordan controlled that area. Uh, that then Jordan lost control of that area. So it's just like some steel girders and cement. But anyway, I took my family there once and we dug around and around and around and moved weeds and finally found the, the big uh, stone that was uh, one of the stones in Saul's palace. And I'm so excited. I'm like, look, this is, this is it. This is the spot. This is a, a literally a touchstone with history where all these stories happen. And my daughter, who's about, um, I think at that time she's eight and she says, a rock? we did all this to see a rock. So she didn't quite have the, it talking to her like me, but I can remember standing there and thinking, this is where all these stories happen. Inside of this is where Saul is throwing the javelin at, John, at David. 
uh, from a couple stories up is where uh, David is getting let out the, the window from Mikal. And uh, you just look this direction a little bit, and this is where the arrow is being shot. And David and Jonathan make their agreement with each other. Just incredible stories that really, really happened in real places. Uh, it's, it's so powerful. In any case, uh, David has to leave. He flees. Um, he's going to head south. He stops at Nob um, and, and eats the shoe bread. Um, the priests help him there. Uh, this will not work out well for the priests because uh, Saul hears that and he kills them as he becomes more and more and more depraved. Uh, Nob, by the way, is uh, today is uh, the, the French Hill area in Jerusalem. It's like where uh, a lot of the teachers at the Jerusalem Center get their groceries. Uh, but in any case, um, David has to flee and he becomes really kind of a guerrilla warfare guy. He gets a following. So many people uh, know him and love him that he gets following. He has a lot of uh, men that follow around with him. Uh, and Saul is chasing him and he's sometimes fighting uh, people uh, as this kind of, uh, I don't know what you'd call him, but uh, uh, free fighter. He uh, uh, has lots of battles with people who are Israel's enemies. So he's not working for Saul anymore, but he's still working for Israel. He's still helping to free Israel from oppression, but he's often um, he's often fleeing from Saul, um, uh, and that's that's a tough and difficult thing. Um, there are a couple of interesting stories. There's a time where uh, David is almost caught by Saul. Saul's chasing him through these hills, and David knows these hills and that territory pretty well. He was a shepherd in that area, um, but he almost catches him, but then uh, they hear right as he's going to get him that uh, the Philistines are uh, just a little ways away and they need to go to battle the Philistines. So David escapes. There's another time where David goes, so it says at the end of chapter 23, David went up from thence where he's almost caught uh, and dwelt at the strongholds of Ein Gedi. So we know where Ein Gedi is, that's the spring of Gedi, uh, and it talks about it being the, the rocks of the caves, I mean of the goats or the, the caves of the goats. There are still today a whole bunch of ibex or goats that are in that area. Um, and, uh, David, uh, there's spring, so there's water and David's hiding there. Saul finds out and he is, uh, pursuing him and he, and he traps him and his men. This is a, a Canyon that it's hard to get out of. I've done a lot of hiking around there and, and it's possible, but it's hard to get out of. Certainly with a large group of men, you'd be in trouble, but tons of caves as well. And Saul, um, has him trapped there. And so he says, let's, let's, it's nighttime, let's sleep. And the next morning we'll get up and, and get David. And it's not impossible. I can't tell for sure, but it seems like David is hiding in the same cave at the back of the cave that Saul chooses to go to sleep in. Uh, maybe that David sneaks into that cave, but it almost seems like he happens to have chosen that same cave. And David has the chance to kill Saul. Uh, David is incredible and in that he will not do this. And he instead cuts off a piece of his cloak as evidence that he could have killed Saul, but he didn't. But he says that he will not put forth his hand against the Lord's anointed. Uh, and that's incredible to me. Uh, now, there, let's also be clear. David is savvy. He's one smart guy. Um, we'll see in the next chapter that he actually is offering protection to people who uh, may only somewhat need protection. So he's not quite mafia, but he's, he's maybe bordering a little bit, but not quite, but he's, he's offering protection to people. Um, he's really savvy in this particular story, because if you think about it, if you are about to become the next king, it's not a good precedent to say, well, 
if you want to be the next king, you kill the old king. Instead, he sets a very strong precedent. It is never okay to kill the king in, under any circumstance. And he'll set that precedent three times. Uh, so he twice in this way and the third time when he uh, is told that someone lies to him and says he killed Saul and he's, David executes him, which he should do. Uh, you can't kill the king. That's treason. You should be executed if you kill the king. Um, and uh, so David starts out as king by having set a very strong precedent. It is not okay to kill the king. So he's very wise and savvy in all of this as well. But, um, but he also, it's clear that it goes beyond that. He really doesn't want to hurt the Lord's anointed. Plus, he uses this as a chance to try to get Saul to change. He talks to him and he says, Who, I'm just a flea. Why are you chasing me? Why are you doing any of this after me? Just go and be king. Look how I could have killed you, but I didn't because I love you. And it's one of these times where Saul does change. Actually, this happens twice, and Saul does change for a short time. He, he changes. And Saul says, he even realizes there, he says, I know you're going to be the next king. Please promise me you won't kill all my descendants. And David promises him that. Uh, this is uh, one of those things that when I look at it, I realize how much David really is someone that the Lord loves. He is being unjustly pursued and unjustly attempted to be murdered or killed a number of times by someone whom he has only helped. And when he has the chance, you would feel completely justified in what is kind of a battle situation in killing Saul. And in many ways, Saul deserves it. David won't do it. Instead, he uses it as an opportunity to try to get Saul to change and has limited success, but some success in that. What a fantastic thing. There are so many things to learn from these stories, uh, and in so many ways do they help us. But uh, I think probably the biggest takeaway is this idea that um, the reason David is such a great king is because he sees things God's way and does things God's way, as opposed to Saul. Uh, and again, Saul is a product of his people, but David will help his people. Uh, and so that's another lesson for us is we can learn to either be shaped by the society around us or we can shape the society around us. I think what we have to be aware of is that we can't do things the way the world does them and expect to have godly outcomes. We have to be different and do things different and stand up for things different and think differently and go against the grain and go with God's vision if we want to be godly. And I hope that we all do want to be godly. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.